When something happens to your car, you might say, But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Allison Bree. Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's like very of all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you. Between recording the next episode of my podcast, running a business, and all of the things life throws my way, Sometimes it's good to just get away. Hola, que tal? It's Chiquis here. And let me tell you, I love booking a trip where I can escape. There's nothing like spending a few days at the beach, relaxing and spending time with family. No matter what kind of traveler you are, and no matter your reasons, the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card is the way to go. If you travel, you know. Hola, Amar. Hola, Wilmer. I have to say I'm feeling really springtime this year. Beyond the gorgeous weather and the flowers coming to bloom, it is so lovely to see more and more people out and about again. I know we're not out of the woods, but it does give me hope. Yeah, me too. After so much grieving, it's nice to have a bit to celebrate. But it's bittersweet, though, because with the coming of spring, it means we only have a few episodes left. I know. It's really crazy to think about the journey we've been embarking in together and lives that we've been able to experience and get to know. I know I'm going to miss hanging out with all of you. If we only have a few episodes left, let's make them some good ones. What's up on today's show, Mr. Today we're going to hear from essential worker Solange Remkisun. She's worked as a survivor services specialist for organizations like SAVE, which stands for Sexual Assault and Violence Education, which is run by the Family Service League of Essex County. As an advocate, she works as a sexual assault response team and answers the phone when someone calls into their hotline. She'll tell us about the difficult realities of the work she does, her incredible passion for that work, and how they had to pivot to help survivors during COVID. To keep the conversation going, we have a roundtable discussion with actress and advocate Gabrielle Union and expert on gender-based violence, Lena Abarafi. And a note to listeners, this episode deals with discussions of sexual and domestic violence, so keep that in mind in deciding when and where to listen. This is definitely one of our harder conversations emotionally, but we learned so much. Solange's story starts now. Hi, my name is Solange Ramkasun. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am coming from Bloomfield, New Jersey. Hey, thank you so much for being here with me and having this conversation. I was really proud of the work you're doing. And can you describe, you know, what you do? Absolutely. Um, so our agency name is Family Service League, uh, Save of Essex County. That's like our full name. SAVE stands for the Sexual Assault and Violence Education in New Jersey. So that's like the sexual violence program for Essex County. We are a part of the sexual assault response team which is, you know, forensics, nurse examiners, law enforcement officers, and then our safe advocates who are the confidential sexual violence advocates. And these advocates, such as myself, are the ones who answer the phone when there's a hotline call. So these are fully trained 
sexual violence advocates, you know, who go through a very intensive training. That's the onboarding process for sexual violence advocates who are able to provide crisis intervention through the hotline. So that's kind of like the main origin point of our services. Well, and how did you specialize in advocacy for domestic violence and sexual assault survivors? So our main program is for sexual violence survivors, but many times, as many of who work in this field know, domestic violence and sexual violence often intersect one another, um, such as intimate partner violence. So we have a state coalition that kind of oversees a lot of our training, um, as well as stuff that we do through our current center and program. And some of us, such as myself, has received training even before entering in the field. Like, you know, I went to school that studied a lot of victimology and victim services. Um, so we kind of pulled all that together and then plus the additional sexual violence specialized training, you know, to perform that crisis intervention with survivors. Because it's very important to be able to, you know, meet those needs and to have somebody fully equipped to help assess that with a survivor. It's like a very central component of our work is to the value of mm -hmm. survivor's autonomy. It's a different perspective of training that's very different than other service providers. What makes you passionate about your work? Is there a specific memory? Is there something? How did you get into this, um, this line of work? You know, growing up, part of like my culture and where I've come from is a very nurturing aspect. And what's your culture? My background is from a West Indian Caribbean background. My family's from Trinidad. So we're very family oriented and, you know, we kind of grew up together. So it was always you were helping out your siblings or your parents, your aunties, your uncles. It was a very nurturing thing. So that was something I believe I was born with my blood. So naturally, I kind of gravitate that as part of my friendships. And as I went to school and growing up and, you know, went to high school, trauma is everywhere. And some people may not see if they're looking hard enough, but it is visible in there. And I t tend to have noticed that when I was growing up and I didn't think at the time I was doing enough, you know, mm -hmm. just being somebody's friend, uh, someone's family member, or just a, a neighbor. I wanted to do more. And that's kind of what focused me to kind of navigate how I can make a career out of it. How can I volunteer my time? And that's what I started doing when I was in, you know, in school. And that kind of led me on my journey. And it really spoke to me in a way that now it's, it's become like an identity that I walk around with. How did the pandemic uh change things? How did it change for you? Well, before I talk about myself, I want to talk about the survivors who they were currently juggling so many important considerations at this time. You know, their health, like you said, their well-being of themselves, their families, jobs that they are not, you know, uncertain of, it may not be unsafe, unemployment, just the insecurity of jobs where they're at, plus the ongoing violence that they may be experiencing. And then the sense of loss, the grievances they've had, and not being able to celebrate or even grieve with a people, that's a lot of additional trauma that the pandemic put on survivors, not only their sexual violence trauma they were dealing with. So as providers, you know, we accepted all those very real, complicated considerations, and we still wanted to hold space for them without any judgment. And these individuals who were going to therapy and making great progress, or who were consistently calling the hotline, now further isolated themselves because they didn't know what to do. And maybe they can't connect, but having privacy to even reach out for those services, just because, like you said, like our planet was in a wave of panic. We didn't know what to do. Everybody kind of went to a sudden stop and halt of normalcy. And for a survivor, you tend to gravitate to feeling concrete about things around you. And 
dealing with their victimization, their survivorship, it just wasn't the most important thing anymore to them. So I don't find that to be unusual for COVID-19, you know, because it really made an impact, especially on the privacy. And for those who are reaching out for help, that's something that's very sacred to somebody, especially when they're dealing with trauma. But as a service provider, you know, it's devastating to learn this. I thought maybe like our line wasn't working, God forbid, or maybe they didn't know if we were there. So, you know, we experienced a sudden wave of quietness for some time, which us who are in the field, we know sexual violence didn't just stop. And that made us concerned, you know, that they may not be getting the help that they could be getting. What could we do? I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you process things yourself and how, what do you do to self-care? How, how do you, how do you continue to do what you do and continue to love life? Um, and is there anything in place to help you also, um, you know, with what you do professionally? So like as workers in the helping community, we tend to like take care of others and really forget to take care of ourselves. So operating in a, like a self-care mindset and being accountable for that is super important because that's how you last to make this a long-standing career. Because burnout is a very real thing that could eliminate people from this work. So even keeping that in mind, it's important to make sure we separate those things from our personal lives, which is important for me to have one. Because as I mentioned before, I walk this as like an identity of who I am. I don't stop being an advocate just because i you know, not on shift that day. It's just who I am. So really having separation from that is important. A key thing for me was like my physical environment, which was difficult during COVID. I kind of lost that. My home space, you know, ended up being my workspace for some time. And that's like a big thing that affected many people who were working in COVID. And, but I learned to adapt and make a new sense of what that separation could be. I tend to gravitate towards people. I love to help people and people are also the the source of my happiness who I'm around. I love my family. I love my parents, my siblings, my snuggles, my dog, you know, that's how I separate it because they're blessed that they don't have to be with me every day of what I do. So being with them as a total separation really helps me transcend from that. And that's kind of how I function being with those people who I love. And that's like a key component to my self-care and taking time for myself. My main thing is all about like self-care for me, especially like my body. During COVID, I think it was the first time I ever prioritized that to the fullest I've ever done because I actually made time. I had to because I lost that environment that I used to like, you know, do. I didn't walk outside. I didn't like, you know, do anything. So I really took care of myself by spoiling myself with bath bombs, taking a bath, doing my hair more. Even if it was just for me, no one had to look at me, but I looked at myself every day and I was smiling, which is such a silly thing to say out loud, but that's kind of how I felt every morning, you know, especially during this work, I needed a reason to smile. And I gave purpose for myself that I was like a good reason to smile. Like I felt something looking at myself and that's kind of what helped me go through. And I've been learning to, even as we slowly, you know, come throughout COVID, I continued to do that. And now that I see like my colleagues, again, people say that I look different and I don't think I actually changed, but Self-care really does change a whole identity of somebody. So I feel like a very different person. So I definitely encourage anybody, if you did not prioritize it before, you will feel like a whole nother person. Even if you actually didn't change anything about yourself, you will look, feel, just breathe differently. 
What infrastructure would you like to see implemented, not only to end domestic violence and sexual assault, but for you and your fellow hotline workers? So for survivors, I would like, you know, be a sense of normalcy to reach for services. There's a lot of shame for anybody mm -hmm. trying to reach out for services. And I would like for them to feel like it's okay and to be supported through that and to be more services, not even just my own. Again, we're a small nonprofit and we can only do as much as we can, but we're only as strong as the people who come join us. Like I said, we have a lot of volunteers and it's important to, for it to not just stop with us. This is its own epidemic and it didn't start with COVID. This has been going on historically for a very long time. Not only, you know, with women, men, children, there needs to be more hands on deck to kind of combat that and to change the way we think and how we view this violence. And I hope that it kind of elevates to that level one day. And I hope I am a part of that change. That's what I'm working to become. And for my fellow colleagues who work on the hotline and volunteers, I want us to feel very good about what we're doing. We should be proud of ourselves. This is a thankless job with what we do, but I hope People think of us as heroes, and I know that's not what we say to one another. It's a very humble people that work on that end. But I hope that we feel like the heroes that we do for others. I want that for everyone to feel like that. And anybody who works in the helping community and works with survivors, we don't call ourselves hero. We don't wear no cape, and we don't wear no cat suit. We're just humans on the other end, and we just want to be there for people. But this is such an important thing. I wish there was a, a way to honor who we are in a bigger light so that maybe there'll be more people who kind of develop this passion of how I do and my colleagues. It's such a taboo when you talk about sexual violence because people don't think it exists. And when you do tell them, especially in their own communities, it's something that they kind of like don't want to talk about too much. But in order to end it, we need to talk about it. Everyone who answers that hotline joins that journey with me. So To honor them in a bigger way, I would love to. That's the next step, making them more than just behind the scenes. Well, we'll end it there. I mean, you couldn't have said it better. So thank you for your time and uh, having this conversation with me. Thank you so much, Wilma, for having me. It was a pleasure. I'm so grateful that Solange was willing to get vulnerable with us and talk about the compounded trauma that not only the survivors she worked with faced, but her own struggles as someone committed to doing more. I found her words about self-care incredibly moving because as she found her own power in taking care of herself, it enabled her to continue to help others. You know, it is a reminder that as a community, you know, we are so lucky to have people like Solange on the other side of the phone. Because as she pointed out, trauma is everywhere and it is not just the survivors who need her, but their loved ones and anybody who wants to show up and help. On that note, when we come back from the break, we'll talk with Gabrielle Union and Lena Abarafi. We'll be right back after this break. When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously, shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember... Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. 
I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billy's vocals. It was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like, da, 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Hola, ¿qué tal? This is Cheekies from the Cheekies and Chill podcast. For whatever reason, or absolutely no reason at all, sometimes we all just need some time to turn off and get away. A lot of times on the My Cultura podcast network, our storytellers share their adventures and tips for living our best lives. And why not? With the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card, you can easily check off all those dreamy destinations, como la playa que viste en ese show, or climbing that mountain on your screensaver. I see you. No matter what kind of traveler you are, and no matter the reason, the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card is the way to go. If you travel, you know. Welcome to Essential Voices, Gabrielle and Lena. We're so excited to have you on the show today. And I know that Wilmer is eager to dive in. So Wilmer, take it away. So let's start with just both of you. We can talk a little bit about your reactions to Solange's story. We can start with you, Gabriela. The first thing that struck me was I've been utilizing these services and recommending these services for almost 20 years since the time I became a rape survivor. And I've never heard of them referred to as essential. I've never even really heard of them referred to as workers, much less an essential worker. But they literally save lives every single day, every hour of every day around the world. They are saving lives. They are first responders in a way that unless you had to utilize their services, you might not ever really acknowledge that they are first responders. The other thing when she said about privacy, having privacy to call the hotline. And, you know, we always rack our brains about, you know, what are the obstacles stopping people from getting the help that they need? And and I absolutely had not thought about, you know, now that we are working in home, you know, for a lot of us due to the pandemic are in the exact same space with others and sometimes with our abusers. Where do you find the space to make the call and to speak uneditably and to get the help that you need? Where is that space? Where is that privacy? And that just gave me the shakes because you realize there are so many obstacles that stop folks from getting help. But I just hadn't thought of that one. It's always mm-hmm. like, oh, just call. And right. it's like, yeah, but if you're in the same mm-hmm. space or you're in shared space and other folks are not familiar with your journey and what you're dealing with, it's almost impossible. And so trying to think of ways of addressing these things, it feels never ending. But at the end of the day, Solange, she is a lifesaver. We love the Avengers and Marvel and DC, but we have real life superheroes who do the work every single day. And it is taxing. I'm sure the burnout is extreme. There's days where, you know, it'll always happen when I'm least expecting it coming out of a bathroom. You're like, oh, wait, let me wash my hands first. And you just get the most horrific stories of sexual violence. There's nothing that prepares you to hear that right. day in, day out, nonstop. There's days where I, you know, I'm called upon to speak and I feel nauseous the whole time. Mm. It, it does get easier in the larger scheme, but reliving your horror so folks don't feel alone, it takes a toll. Yeah. So listening to the stories as well, it, it takes a lot. And so I'm just, I give up all the kudos, all the love, all the praise to, you know, people like Solange who, who do this 
incredibly difficult work every day. Mm -hmm. Thank you. What about for you, Lena? Oh, I have to echo that. Absolutely. I love the idea that we're honoring frontline workers and we're defining that more broadly. We're really thinking differently about what it means to be on the front lines. And it's not just COVID. I mean, this has been happening since the beginning of time. And it is absolutely life-saving. The idea that it is about bodily integrity and autonomy. It is about your own dignity and respect, your right to your own body and to not have it violated, the things that we shouldn't be taking for granted and that we have to fight for constantly. I mean, I've been doing this work now 25 years overseas and I see it everywhere all the time and it repeats and it is constant and you think you fixed one problem and you find a hundred more. And talking about what is life-saving in these kinds of situations, you know, it's like the tyranny of the urgent. People will always tell you that there's something more important than this, but in all the countries I've been in all around the world, you know, there's really nothing more important than this. Being safe and free and comfortable in your mm. own body, in your own home, in your school, on the street, in the market, in the office, in public mm. office. I sometimes wonder how we're still even fighting for all of this. And I, I loved what Solange had to say. You know, she she started really young. Like I got into this at 14. People were like, what are you doing? This is so depressing. But I have not been able to think about anything else. I've been thinking about it since age 14, which is a long time ago, doing the work for 25 years in about 20 different countries, and I'm going to do it until I die. And then even then, I wouldn't have fixed the problem. And I want someone to dig me from the grave and let me know when we're done, because I just can't believe that we still have these issues on the table. You know, we bring in something like COVID and it comes up all over again and new forms and more and it's worse and women are more at risk and less safe. And I think I cannot accept this kind of world. So I I feel her very, very deeply. But I love, you know, one thing she said about self-care and understanding what that means. And I think those of us who've done this work or who've experienced this and who are survivors as well, like we just don't think about that. And we feel like every minute that we don't spend doing this is, you know, one minute more that we're going to have to endure it later. But actually, I remember in 2002, before I moved to Afghanistan, somebody said to me, if you get to the point where you know you need a break, you've already gone too far. And I ignored that for about two decades. But, you know, it still kind of haunts me because I understand now what that means, that we really have to look after ourselves. Otherwise, we're not going to be good for anyone else. And if we are dedicating our lives to the service of others, you need to look after yourself as well. Mm -hmm. Mm, Yeah, I love everything that you're both saying. Gabrielle, what you're talking about in calling folks like Solange superheroes is something that we've been hearing across the board with the essential workers that we've had the honor of speaking with this season. So it's beautiful that folks are starting to be understood in their full humanity for the work that they're doing and how they're supporting their communities. And something you mentioned, Lena, is that you've been doing this work in many countries, not just in the U.S., for decades. And we know that you've spoken in the past about the increase in sexual violence after natural disasters. And although COVID isn't a natural disaster, it's become a humanitarian crisis So could you tell us a bit more about the impact of COVID on survivors and also the impact of lockdowns on intimate partner violence at home? Well, what it's done, first of all, is amplify any existing forms of violence, intimate partner violence, sexual violence, everything that existed before has gotten much worse. And we should backpedal a little bit. It's important to note that this is everywhere all the time, COVID or not, disaster, conflict or not, rich, poor, race, whatever, doesn't matter, everyone everywhere. The danger that we face is that we other it quite often. We say, well, that's not me or here or or us or whatever, but it is, it's all of us. 
and the statistic is really disturbing. It's one in three women and girls worldwide are going to experience some form of violence. And that's just what we know. And that's in the so-called normal times. So let's bring in a COVID or a disaster or a war or, you know, what's happening in Ukraine or whatever. You pick your crisis. Everything that happens is going to get much worse. And then new forms are going to be created. So we know that intimate partner violence, where it existed before, was much worse. You're locked in with the abuser. And new forms are created as well. So new cases of abuse emerged. And women and girls are always the ones that are vulnerable before any crisis. And that vulnerability is just magnified. I mean, looking at things that were happening internationally, like that you might not even connect, like child marriage that exists everywhere, that even happens in the States, actually. There are, I think it's about 15 million girls married every year that are under the age of 18. 15 million. And this is all pre-COVID stuff. This is what I call so-called normal times, even though there's no such thing as normal and this is not normal. And that's like 40,000 marriages of girls a day. Now bring COVID in and we are going to have an additional 10 million girl-child marriages because families have to offload the economic burden. They have to sell off their girls. They might not be able to afford to feed them, keep them, school them, etc., So we're talking about 10 million additional girl-child marriages. Something like female genital mutilation has also increased several million. All of these things that happen to women and girls anyway have now gotten that much worse. And then resources are reduced. So resources that we've used for shelters or safe spaces, services, support, whatever it is, hotlines, healthcare, name it. All of that stuff had to be redirected to COVID. And granted, COVID was an emergency still in many ways, and the resources are already so scarce. So these are the programs that tend to be the least resourced even in the good times. They're the ones where funding is stripped first and funding is revived last. Same for women's employment or any kind of source of survival or financial independence, all of that stuff. Then you see things like transactional sex, increasing sex for work, sex for food, sex for rent. All of this is about survival and safety. So everything that is a bad situation, even without COVID, has just gotten that much worse. It's been really sobering to hear all these stories and specifically, you know, understanding where we've been in the topic and in the conversation. Um, I came from Venezuela and they have a major issue with trafficking of women and specifically in Colombia and after the Venezuela national and political and economical disaster, everyone had to pretty much flee Venezuela. Doctors and teachers, I mean, they had no other alternative but to go to prostitution to feed their children. It was a catastrophe for so many women who have made careers and they were professionals and they came to a point economically that they just really couldn't thrive anymore. You know, and I wanted to pivot a little bit to Gabrielle. You know, you have been an advocate for survivors for decades. I mean, I've known of your work ever since I've known you and followed your career and been friends. And you were there before it was actually even a Me Too movement. Can you tell us a bit more about your approach to that work? What still needs to be done? I know it's a pretty loaded question, but I think in your comprehension and your experience with it, I'd love to see what light you have to that. Yeah, I think my journey towards the work was probably a little atypical. I was raped in a community that was predominantly white. So even though you're not supposed to print the name or or any identifying markers of a rape survivor, when you're the black person, like for miles around, there were only so many 
19 year old black girl victim from Pleasanton, you know, the town that I grew up in in Northern California, everyone knew it was me. So I didn't have the luxury of deciding when or how, or if I was going to tell the story. So once it was sort of out there, it opened this door that I had no control over, but all of a sudden I was inundated with folks saying this had happened to them as well. And that kind of carried on. So the first time I spoke about it publicly, I was doing a show called City of Angels, where the storyline, there was a, a character that was raping the women who worked in the hospital. And each week I'd get my script terrified that I would be next. And there was no way I could emotionally, physically, spiritually mm-hmm. survive reenacting that. It was too close to my rape. And so I had to go to the producers and I was like, I'm a rape survivor. I'm, I am so uncomfortable with this. Can, you know, is there anything you can do? And you know, super, super lucky in the sense that they were like, oh my gosh, we're going to, we'll pivot. You, this will not happen to you. Um, and right around that same time, I, I got offered my first cover. And in the cover interview, and these are like pinnacles of your career, like my first cover, I've mm-hmm. made it. And they were asking dumb questions. And I took that moment to say, I have important things to talk about. And if I'm going to have this microphone shoved in my face, I want to talk about things that can maybe save other people. And it was the first time I spoke about being a rape survivor that opened up the mm. floodgates. So think at 19, that door that got cracked and all those people that came through, this is like beyond anything I could imagine to this day. It's been, this year will be 30 years and it feels like it's been six months. Mm. And so the work has, because I have been very public about my journey, people come no matter where I am, what else is happening, they come. And I remember using in that cover article, the phrase me too, and how many people had come up to me since speaking about it, who had said, Hey, me too. It it happened to me too. And so it was just a phrase that I had used a lot, but that led to doing the work, you know, so whether that being on president Obama's national advisory committee, you know, against violence against women and children, or working with a number of grassroots organizations around the world, the work comes because I have been open about it. And, you know, there's times, you know, listening to Lena talk about, you know, globally, you know, of course, we all know, well, hopefully we all know on this call, rape is the most underreported crime in the world. Mm -hmm. As stark as as our statistics are, that's being grossly underreported, right? So I go to Ghana to dedicate the first breast health hospital in the country. I'm there on behalf of a a breast health organization. I'm supposed to be talking about breast cancer and breast health and getting exams and because we also were dedicating one of the only state-of-the-art medical facilities, it very quickly shot beyond treating women with cancer. And I was called upon in these medical conferences that are about cancer to talk about the other cancer, which is sexual violence that occurs around the world. So it doesn't really matter for me what work I'm doing. I could be doing a show where I'm just fighting aliens and people be like, (laughs) let's talk. And I don't mind. And it's interesting is every time I speak openly, no matter how many organizations I'm involved with, because people consider me normal or well-adjusted or successful or I party or there's a trail of penises that I have chosen for myself in my way. <laughs> um, people have decided that it couldn't have happened to me because I'm too normal. I'm too, you know, open to talk about sex mm. freely. I'm too, you know, whatever. I don't look like a victim. So right. it's like every right. couple years I have to reintroduce myself as a sexual assault survivor. And then you watch the, oh, there's no way, there's no way mm. because I don't fit the type. Right. So 
again, most of my work <laughs> happens in public restrooms, at the airport, at an amusement park, on sets, in my DMs. It just, it doesn't stop. And I will say during the pandemic, just like Lena spoke to, the number of people who mm. are suffering and hurting and have been brutalized I'd say quadrupled, but I don't think that's a big enough number. It's just has increased beyond anything that I think any of us could ever imagine. But I think for a lot of folks out there, I don't think they have any idea how prevalent the crisis of sexual violence is. I'm wondering, Lena, I'm just seeing you kind of shaking your head. Obviously, I have my own reactions, but I'm wondering, Lena, if you have anything that you'd like to add. Gabrielle, that's amazing that you use your voice and your platform and your brand and your work and your and your face and your presence and all of that for this. I think it's so courageous. And I love that you and so many others are able to do it. And I think, you know, normalizing this conversation, because this is so incredibly normal. I mean, what you said actually was like a punch in the gut. Like people don't see you, they don't think you look like a victim. You know, right. what does a victim look like? Like every single woman I know, myself included, has a story. All of us are victims, you know, and I feel like there's this kind of fetishizing of the story and of the experience and of wanting to know, you know, when I'm working internationally, especially like journalists will come and say, well, tell us a story of a rape victim and how many women and how many girls have been raped. Well, you know, how many do you need? Like how many, what's your magic number? Right. How, how many is going to make a difference to you? <laughs> you know, point. and that donors do the same. They're like, okay, well, we're not going to give you money for, you know, this project on sexual violence. And so you tell us how many, well, what do you want? A hundred, want a thousand? Like if there's a number for you, that is going to make a difference. I assure you, we've got that number and more because first of all, we know that it's dramatically underreported. All of these women and girls, I mean, there is no way, you know, even in this country and much less any other, but there is a lot of incentive to report when there's no support and services and the justice sector fails women and police fail, you know, and on and on. I mean, the things that we know. So, you know, what number, how many is enough? You know, even one is one too many, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we should be saying. And everybody is a victim, you know, and as long as this exists, as long as this continues, we're all victims, whether we experience it ourselves or not. I mean, the idea that even the fear of this, you know, living in a female body, even the fear of this is a form of violence, right? How many times do you have to say, like, call me when you get home or, you know, don't walk in this dark parking lot or, you know, hold your keys between your fingers like that in case you need to poke somebody's eye. Like, what kind of life is that? Mm -hmm. You're curbing your freedom and your mobility and you're restricting, you're, you're living so small, because of this risk that you feel like you would take. And if anything happens to you, well, then it's your fault. And on and on. I mean, the way that we deal with this is just so flawed on so many levels. And I think, you know, to go back to what I started with, which was applauding your courage, is that the more people talk about it and normalize it and see what we all look like and what work needs to be done, the more conversations we have around this, the less we're going to be experiencing it, is what I think, mm -hmm. is what I hope. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that with us, Lena. I mean, it's bananas hearing you say, like, how many folks need to be affected by this before it starts to matter on a large scale? Because you're right, it should just be one person for it to matter. And obviously, we would hope that we get to a world where it's not affecting anybody. But that leads into a question that I have for you, Gabrielle, because... We know that you're working on lots of initiatives to combat what Lena was just discussing, such as the We As Ourselves campaign. And I'm wondering if you can talk about what that is and the disproportionate impact of sexual violence on Black and brown communities. Oh, my gosh. So much of, of everything that I'm working on across the board is about centering the most marginalized of us. So whether that's 
in Hollywood with a production company, whether that's with any of the initiatives that I'm working on, whether that's just meeting people in the street and, and having real on the go conversations. I try to center the most marginalized of us when I think about solutions and when I think about whose story gets to go first, because we work in Hollywood, we see who gets to the microphone first and, and always and gets to talk the longest. And it's rarely people of color. It's rarely people of color in the LGBTQIA community. It's rarely people of color in the LGBTQIA community from a lower socioeconomic group status. There's so many things that we have to combat. But if you center the needs of the most marginalized, no matter what you do across the board, you start there, it tends to cover everyone, right? So if we center Black trans women who are experiencing you know, being unhoused, food scarcity, if we center their needs and their stories and their narratives, we have a better chance of covering everyone. Now, if you look at using an example that a lot of people seem to be more familiar with, like a Harvey Weinstein, mm -hmm. right? As the parade of women, the endless parade of women starts coming out, he didn't call bullshit and tell a black woman, Lupita, accused him. And this is a similar thing that we see in our communities over and over and over again. No matter how similar our story, no matter how it might pull on someone's heartstring, the second you factor in race, once the second you hit all of those intersections, mm. people lean the hell out. And her story, and this is Lupita, Oscar winning Lupita, died on the vine. Selma Hayek, wait, I have something to say, married to one of the most powerful, wealthy men in the world, Latina story dies on the vine. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So when Lena's talking about how many, how many, what is the number before you understand that even if it's your fave might not have the look of a rapist or mm -hmm. an, a sexual abuser. Yeah. It's going down across the board. And if we reach for the people who have no voice, who have no resources, whose stories don't make the nightly news when they go missing, that is where that is what this work does is center the needs of the most marginalized in, in this particular movement, talking about sexual violence, but also in all of the things that I do. That's just how it has to go. And when you sign up for me, you sign up for all the marginalized folks. And I used to just be like, OK, I got to focus on black folks. And then I realized, OK, I am one of several people of color who have this kind of platform and who get this kind of attention. Mm -hmm. I can't just speak for you know, black folks. I can't speak for the trans woman in my own life who lives in my home. I have to use this time to speak for Latinos and Latinas and, and my Asian brothers and sisters, and my Muslim brothers and sisters and every marginalized person across, yeah. across the globe. So when people say, well, what is it gonna take? Shit a lot. All of the systems that we have completely bought into, i.e. white supremacy and, and anti-blackness, all of these things factor into how we respond to different rape survivors, rape victims. There's so many initiatives. I mean, and there's things that I, again, like in the breast health movement, we do all these initiatives for breast health or diabetes <laughs> doesn't really matter. It always comes back to mm -hmm. this. You can't get around it. So whoever else is out there, no matter what you're volunteering for, what, no matter what your interests are, understand that sexual violence permeates every, every industry, every part of society, every culture, every community, but centering the needs of the most marginalized to me is, is a more effective way to combat it all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. I'm so happy you share that because you wear two hats, right? You are yourself, right? You're going through your own personal journey as you heal. And then you take on 
the stories and the world around you that comes with the community as well. And it's so important to take care of yourself. I mean, I would say, humbly speaking, I put my my heart in so many different communities and advocate for so many different types of journeys, you know, whether it was the armed forces and post-traumatic stress, whether it was the immigrant community, you know, whether it's the families crossing the border, you know, there was just so much about each one of their stories that was just a movie that was exhausting. You know, and that I couldn't even believe they were living it. And now somehow I was feeling what they were feeling. And you're right, it's exhausting and it's tough. And I think it's important that you find out a groove for that. And I think about all those communities and this question would be for both of you. What are some of the things that individuals can do in their immediate circle to support survivors? And if themselves are survivors, what other resources can folks lean on? Maybe an interesting, comprehensive way to think about the first step or the first phase. I think the first thing, you have to become a very good listener. I think a lot of us listen to react or you're devising a plan as you're listening versus just listening. And you have to check yourself every time you're like, let me interrupt. Think, am I interrupting for myself or is this somehow, am I helping? Usually it's like, oh, I just want to get a spicy hot take off or I want to say something or... It's not what you're here for. You're here to listen. And you have to be an active listener. Don't listen to react. Just listen. And then as friends, as allies, believe people when they're talking. Don't ask, Mm -hmm. what did you have on? These are questions that I actually got at 19 when I was raped at gun. What did you have on? What did you do? What do you think you could have done differently? Uh, I don't know. It's evil. It's evil. I don't know. There's no good way of responding to evil. I did what I did to survive, Mm -hmm. you know, don't compare anyone's journey, their experience to anyone else's. No two rape victims or survivors are alike. Every story is unique and very personal. Remember that you should be a vault. Whatever goes into your ear should never come out your mouth to anyone else. It's not your story to tell. Mm -hmm. And then ask perhaps maybe at the end what the, the survivor or victim wants to do and how you might be of service. But you probably have been of service if you zipped it, didn't say any crazy things, and you just listened. That is the first thing. You know, a lot of us want to go, okay, let's go to the police. Well, 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 hold on, hold on. Let's pump the brakes. Mm -hmm. Because for a lot of communities of color, the police don't feel like a viable option. It feels like being traumatized again. You know, going to get a rape kit. Again, there is no one way to get from victim to survivor. Mm -hmm. There is no one way to heal. There is no one way to exist in this space. So you have to ask. Don't ever take it upon yourself. As we call it in our community, talking out of school, this is not your thing. You have to listen. And then you ask, how can I be of service? Mm -hmm. And if they share something with you, that is always between you and the, the person sharing. You can't make people's personal business conversation starters. And this happens so much when you talk to junior high, high school kids. I mean, mainly a lot of it is just a lack of maturity and experience and not really knowing what to do, but everything is to post. Everything is a spicy hot take. Everything is meant to then be weaponized against someone. And that is not our job. That is not our job some starters, I think. I mean, that's beautiful. Um, (laughs) Thank you for that. That's amazing. Lena, what about you? Um, Yeah, that sums it up. But I have to say that I learned recently, and I'm surprised that even after 25 years of doing this work and experiences I've had, 
that I still, there's so much that I need to learn about this as well. The difference between self-care and self-soothing. You know, we talk a lot about self-care and maybe it's like kind of Instagram-y or whatever, and you can get a massage and sit in a bubble bath, have a glass of wine and, you know, take yourself to Jamaica, you know, whatever, like self-care. There's something trendy about it. And it appears to be, there's a tick boxy thing to it, but it's also kind of elusive. But for me, I was like, well, self-care, I've got to book the massage. I've got to, you know, that's like three weeks out. Nobody has any time for me. And I understood really very recently that the idea of self-soothing is really effective for me in the micro moments to kind of talk myself off the ledge as, mm. as it were, just to like breathe deeply, step back, put it away, close my eyes, turn the other way, you know, do whatever it takes, you know, curl up next to my dog, you know, switch on the TV and watch them do whatever you need to do that you can do at a moment's notice that you have at your disposal, your little arsenal for lack of a better word. So for me on a personal level, it's really the self-soothing techniques that I try and apply before, you know, that emotional kind of hyperventilating, like, or the work gets to be too much or all this stuff is too frustrating. It's impossible to not be emotionally involved. Like I keep telling people, if you're not angry about this, you're asleep. I, I, I understand how you can't be. So, you know, from that perspective, like, are enough people angry? You know, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I think there is a missing element of really understanding how pervasive this all is, these forms of violence, how they affect all of us, what they do to individuals and families and societies and communities and countries. I mean, we keep saying like research shows globally that the best predictor of peace, of prosperity, of progress in a country isn't about the government, isn't about the health of the economy. It's really about equality. You know, it's about how you treat your women, actually, because that tends to be the most marginalized parts of the community. I mean, there is your indicator. Everybody deserves dignity, equality, respect, Mm -hmm. rights, bodily autonomy, safety and security, These are basics and we're all going to be better off if we understand that. So, you know, I would say to other people, and I say very often, like, understand the magnitude of the problem. So listen, I love that. Don't respond with, you know, why didn't you leave him or whatever types of stuff that we hear far too often still in, in this day and age. I cannot believe. But then also understand that you might be a resource and a lifeline for somebody if they've turned to you and they've told you this, you know, at least say the right things. If you're asked, ask what it is you can do and know that there are services and support available and can try and point to those if that is what this individual wants of you. We'll be right back after this break. When something happens to your car, you might say, But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Hola, ¿qué tal? This is Cheekies from the Cheekies and Chill podcast. For whatever reason, or absolutely no reason at all, sometimes we all just need some time to turn off and get away. A lot of times on the My Cultura podcast network, 
our storytellers share their adventures and tips for living our best lives. And why not? With the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you can easily check off all those dreamy destinations. Como la playa que viste en ese show or climbing that mountain on your screensaver. I see you. No matter what kind of traveler you are, and no matter the reason, the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card is the way to go. If you travel, you know. Welcome back to Essential Voices. First of all, I'm so incredibly inspired by both of you, your work, bravery, and most importantly, your commitment. Your commitment to continue to show up, to continue to relive not just your story, but the stories of the ones that you take on. And I'm just so proud of your work. Lena, what an honor. And Gabby, I'm so proud of you as, as your friend and as a brother. And I just want to offer a, a quick little space for all of you. You know, as we look forward, what are some of the uh, community-based solutions for preventing sexual violence? And also maybe how can we support the efforts and the work that you're doing? Tell us how we can follow along and how can we multiply, you know, your efforts out there? It's just keep talking about it. Keep talking about it. So it never feels brand new. It never feels like, what? You? No, I couldn't imagine it. Normalize using words like rape and sexual assault. These are not inflammatory words that, you know, a lot of times you say rape and people are like, oh, 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 oh. no, make it normal because it is such a part of our society. Mm. We have to talk about it like it is. Like we talk about hurricanes during hurricane season. So imagine rape, the season, if you will, I'm using my finger quotes here for the listeners at home. The season never ends for rape. So you have to constantly be talking about it. So as we're raising these kids, we have to be having these conversations. I've got two 20-year-old stepsons and having the enthusiastic consent conversation, I will admit, super foreign, definitely didn't have this conversation growing up, but this is where we're at. And you have to have the conversation. You got to go point by point. You have to imagine what the scenarios are looking like and you have to give them the language. You have to give them the plan of what enthusiastic consent looks like, sounds like, what are these conversations like? Mm. And also give them an example of what coercive language and tactics look like that are the opposite of consent. We just have to be brutally honest, call a thing a thing, be very clear that it doesn't matter how someone looks. A lot of folks think that if you're an attractive man, that you couldn't possibly be capable of rape or, or sexual violence. Or if you are a larger uh, woman or a larger man, like we have these ideas about who can be raped, who can be a rapist, throw all of that out the window. Mm. There is no look, there is no rhyme, there is no reason. It can be someone in your family. It could be a stranger literally hopping out of the bushes, but you cannot predict a look or a type. But we do know how to prepare ourselves and our children to have honest conversations about consent and about how to be good allies. Mm -hmm. And if it happens to you, what to do. Absolutely. I love this idea of enthusiastic consent. I think that's a great word to add. But I would say, you know, it's not too late for our generation, but really let's start young. Let's start really, really. Let's start with your daughter. She's one. You know, let's start talking about consent and my body and saying no. And let's normalize all of those conversations. Let's talk about bodily autonomy and use the proper names for private parts. And let's not have secrets. And let's talk about what is safe and unsafe touching. Let us have those conversations 
at home, in schools. Let's have basic universal sex ed. Let's have full sexual and reproductive health and rights seen as rights for everyone. I mean, here we are again in the U.S. fighting for our rights to decide what to do with our bodies and our lives again, again, and again. I mean, we are in year 49 of uh, Roe versus Wade, and it could be the last year. Mm -hmm. You know, do we have rights to decide what happens to our own bodies? And this has to be from the fetus to the funeral. You know, it's your body from day zero. And we really need to see it that way. You know, and what can we all do People ask me all the time, they're like, well, you, know, you went to Afghanistan, you went to Congo, and you went to the Central African Republic and places people can't find on the map, right? And they're like, well, I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do it that way. And I said, that's okay. Because actually, this is everywhere all around you. It's, it's right in your home. It's on your street. It's in your school. It's, it's absolutely everywhere. And a couple of years ago, 2015, I did a, a TED Talk. And the theme of that was start where you stand. Meaning that if you just stand up, look around you and see what's going on, you'll never unsee it. And you can take action right there in your home, uh, with your friends, with your peer group, whatever you've got at your disposal in your little circle, you you can make change there. And if everybody took responsibility for their own little circles you know, they're all going to connect with that kind of behavior. Behavior is contagious. So make it good behavior. You know, everybody link up and start changing the way that we deal with these things. Change the narrative, you know, turn to your friends, your buddies, whatever, and say, you know what? No, that's, you can't, that's not cool. You can't say that. Don't do that. That's not right. Mm -hmm. Stop things when you hear them. Start where you stand, wherever you are. And I think that's what's going to really make a difference. So at least understand that, you know, we need to help each other here. We need to know what's going on and we need to support each other through it. And this is never about other people. It's about, it's about you and me. It's where, you know, here we are. Mm-hmm. It's about all of us. And I just, for me, it's just not something that I'm willing to tolerate in my lifetime. And I certainly don't want to hand this on to the next generation. I'd like us to fix it. If there's been one thing we've learned from all of our conversations on Essential Voices is that there's been no universal pandemic experience. Today's conversation with Gabrielle and Lena was a reminder that for many folks, staying at home didn't mean staying safe the way we've come to understand the meaning of that phrase. As a father, that really resonated with me, and I'm glad we're opening up these conversations. I know that I'll be thinking about today's conversation and all the ways we can continue to help for a long time coming. Next week, we'll be back for a conversation with Andres Almeida, a waiter and graduate student from New York City. We'll then follow that conversation with a roundtable with chef and owner of Kogi Barbecue, Roy Choi, and one fair wage advocate, Saru Jayaraman. Essential Voices with Wilmer Valderrama is produced by me, M.R. Raquel, Allison Shano, and Kevin Rutkowski, with production support from associate producer Lillian Holman. Executive producers Wilmer Valderrama, Adam Reynolds, Leo Clem, and Aaron Hilliard. This episode was edited by M.R. Raquel, Sean Tracy, and Justin Cho, and features original music by Will Rosati. Special thanks to this week's Essential Voice, Solange Ramkasun, and to our thought leaders Gabrielle Union and Lena Abarafi. Additional thanks to Lauren Smith, Chelsea Thomas, and Abigail Bickle. This is a Clamor and WV Entertainment production in partnership with iHeartRadio's My Cultura Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeart, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. 
I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro. Billy's vocals. It was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Between recording the next episode of my podcast, running a business, and all of the things life throws my way, sometimes it's good to just get away. Hola, que tal? It's Chiquis here. And let me tell you, I love booking a trip where I can escape. There's nothing like spending a few days at the beach, relaxing, and spending time with family. No matter what kind of traveler you are, and no matter your reasons, the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card is the way to go. If you travel, you know. Hi, I'm John O'Brien, host of Money and Wealth on the Black Effect Podcast Network. I'm an entrepreneur and a businessman. Now, every Thursday, my newest venture is educating you on how to win financially. Even better, I'm going to teach it in a way that, well, you can understand. I'm going to meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. We all might have different starting points and end goals, but as long as we have the desire to acquire financial freedom, it can be done. Listen to Money and Wealth with John Hope Bryant every Thursday on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother, Jonah. And we are so excited to have you hear the latest season of our nostalgia-themed podcast, How Did We Get Weird? Not only do you get to know me and my brother, you get to know the stories that made us the absolutely rad people we are today. Like you, Jonah, who's a music person and also a mental health counselor. And you, Vanessa, who is an actress, comedian, and I think you even wrote a children's book. Wow. I sure did. Check out our episodes where we've welcomed hilarious guests like our friend Andy Samberg. That's it. That's really it. And Queen Casey Wilson. I really went cart before the horse. I said, I think I have an opportunity to interview Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> As a high school student. Plus legendary sisters Amber Ruffin and Lacey Lamar. Top. You would pull the bag out and then we would eat okay. the eat all the leftover the leftover chocolate chips, which was a lot. Then you'd roll the barrel oh, up, so to, up the hill. And then one of us would get inside the barrel and they'd push you down. And we've also had an amazing guest like Mike the Miz, Jason Isbell, Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker of Slater Kinney, and many more. And you do not want to miss out on our funny segments like Change.Dork. <laughs> Change.Dork. And congratulations, you played yourself. Congratulations, you played yourself. Listen to our podcast, How Did We Get Weird, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.